Lady of the Evening Personal Log, my own private diary, London, England. Oh, blimey! What's all this, then? There's dark magic come to town, and his name is Professor Moriarty, it is, it is. Pip-pip, cheerio, Bob's your uncle and all that. Welcome to Reengage, the weekly podcast where we watch and discuss episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Our cultural bridge officers dissect each episode as well as the pop culture and world events that took place when it first aired. We're a bunch of Gen X adults returning to the series we loved as kids to see how it holds up. So stuff your face with crumpets and let's re-engage. Welcome to season two of Re-Engage. We are so pleased to have you here and we have our cultural bridge officers to join us here for elementary Dear Data. Let's do some quick around the horn hellos, starting with Mr. Greg Tito. How are you? Good, sir. Doing great, Kate. Very excited uh, to be here and see all of my friends again and talk. Uh, you know, sci-fi Victorian era is my favorite era, so I'm really excited to talk about it. <laughs> hello, Jimmy. How are you? It's a... <laughs> hello, hello. I'm doing very well, I should say. Feeling very randy about tonight's episode. <laughs> And of course, Eric Grattan. Hello, Eric. How are you? Hi, Kate. I'm doing real well. I am so fucking happy to be here. This episode just tickles my happy bones all the way through. I'm so excited to talk about elementary dear data with all three of you lovely bridge officers. Ah, and talk about it we shall. Stardate 42286.3, also known as December 5th, 1988. In pop culture world, uh, number one on the music charts, if you see me walking by and the tears are in my eyes, look away, baby, look away. Thank you, Chicago. Oh, that song, y'all. I sang that for an audition for Waitress the Musical in New York like two and a half years ago. Holy shit! Fuck yeah. Oh, it's a great fucking song. No social emotional learning in that song. (laughs) No, none. It's amazing. Uh, Speaking of no social emotional learning, the number one movie was The Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad. Oh, that movie. Eric, uh, as, yes. a, as a physical comedian, talk oh. talk about young Eric watching that movie. Well, I mean, I didn't understand Nice Beaver <laughs> at the time. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair but enough. I sure understood the fighting fish and Leslie Nielsen uh, trying to get his pen back uh, from that thing, pulling it out of the immortal Ricardo Montalban's uh, uh aquarium there like between that and the stupid bits with like the the red cashew or red uh, pistachios that's the one that i always remember the red all around their their mouths <laughs> and the mound outside the, the car mound. it's oh, such yeah. a dumb joke but it's hilarious <laughs> to this day it's ridiculous like every time i eat pistachios i think of that joke now i can't help it even though they don't that's even like put the red dye on though, it right yeah it's it like a it's like a spit take, you know, it, it, there's nothing original about it. But when the opportunity presents itself, if you don't take it, you're fired. It's like a jump scare. I, I try and explain comedy as the same thing as horror. 
It's just about the approach. Mm-hmm. Like you, if you can make people laugh, you can make people scream and vice versa. So like, I really think that anything funny has less to do about what it is than how it's done. And it's just the timing of the surprise or the confirmation of what they're expecting and you get in that blah, blah, blah. Fuck it. I just had a toke. <laughs> <laughs> Expounding upon the naked gun. <laughs> Let me explain what comedy is. <laughs> naked gun when I'm the, stu- the students in Eric's class are like, I love it when he gets on these rings. <laughs> Time goes faster. <laughs> Should I write this down, Mr. Grimm? <laughs> Well, this is Eric's buy of the week. <laughs> Please subscribe to my acting podcast. Uh, in celebrity gossip news, Gary Busey was critically injured in a motorcycle accident, uh, which uh, I want to make some sort of a that explains everything joke, but it feels like something you're not supposed to laugh about. So let's make sure I don't make that joke. But it was the beginning of the end for Gary Busey, wasn't it? Just to see him go out and advocate for helmetless laws and all that stuff after this, it was just... Is that what so... happened? Yeah. I didn't Holy know shit. He, uh, he was very much in front of that. And He's like, look, I survived. So good you can too. Into the early 80s. Like, Ugh. a really good actor. I feel like maybe Point Break was the last good one. Oh, God, that's one of my favorite movies of all time. I don't even fucking care. Yeah, I'll watch that for days. So good. So good. Uh, And in Celebrity Deaths, Roy Orbison passed away. And I remember that one. I feel feel like that one hit my parents pretty hard um, because it was just like someone of their, like, someone that they'd grown up with passing. And I remember that hitting them sort of hard. No, agreed. Uh, in our car, Dad controlled the radio, right? So it was the Beatles, and then around this time, it was the Traveling Wilburys, right? So mm. Roy Orbison was a was a fixture in in our commutes. And this was not long after that Traveling Wilburys album first came out, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't we talk about that in the first season? So it was very much like people just gotten to know him a little bit more uh, of this generation. And uh, Pretty Woman was about to be coming out too, so. Yeah, it right. was it was right in that cultural zeitgeist, and then to have them you know have them be lost. Yeah, I do and remember he had him. a pretty big hit right before he died with that. You got it too. Yeah, everything you want, you, you got, got it, baby. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. that falsetto. God, he was good. Yeah, so good. Uh, Greg, what was happening in in news at this time? So much was happening. I actually ended up going into like research mode. I was in like New York Times articles and the AP stuff. Uh, So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go domestic to foreign uh, first. Oh, shit's about to get real. Okay, right. So uh, Jim Baker was indicted uh, on this day. Actually, on the day that this uh, episode premiered on December fifth for fraud. Uh, yeah, yeah, the glasses are actually pretty spot on, uh, for Jim Baker. Um, but yeah, he was, he was indicted for, uh, basically defrauding his, uh, constituents, uh, or, you know, his congregation, uh, trying to get them to buy vacation houses. And then, uh, he basically just paid himself, uh, and all these things came out and he was indicted uh, on this day for all of these things. In addition to, yes, Eric. I just feel like I remember this, and I is it is it illegal anymore? 
<laughs> no, it's not. Because I look around me and like all of the people I've heard of uh, who are preachers, pretty much, uh, they do everything that he did then. Right. But like, is it just not illegal anymore? This is interesting because this is kind of the first one, right? This was the first one that kind of fell and people were like, oh, God, he was he was, you know, being uh, also prosecuted for alleged rape uh, of, of drugging as the secretary with one of the other executives that had come out like a year or two before he'd already resigned from his thing at this point. And then they finally were like, all right, well, let's, this is the investigation. We're throwing the book at you. Uh, and he ended up uh, going to jail for a long time, divorcing his wife, Tammy Faye, who ended up being a talk show host in, as well with uh, Jim J. Bullock, right? And, and, and did some reality television, too, I think. Like, became friends with Coolio, I'm going to say. I have nothing to back that, that up, but I'm right. going to say it's true. That feels right. Like, it was a big brother or something like that. Famous. Yeah. Uh, so then, I didn't know this, Jim Swaggart took over Jim Baker's uh, thing and then Swagger also falls from grace uh, later on Jerry Falwell took it over like was this the whole bunch of nuts um, but that was the first kind of big thing that happened and I then I wonder if we would learn anything by examining the uh, series of people who led that particular movement funnily it's enough pattern there that emerges and you're right it's basically what the Alex Jones kind of info world you know that stuff is all they're basically using the exact same tactics right now so it is cyclical uh, and that's true for uh a couple of stories here. So Mikhail Gorbachev is visiting New York City uh, during this time. Uh, there's a lot of really positive press for him in the New York Times about him, like taking a motorcade after he was like, you know, was at the UN and doing summit meetings. And then they, he like went around and his wife went to go uh, to the Estee Lauder. And uh, and they're they're really writing about them in this like really nice like, oh, man. and there's there's one quote from this AP article that uh, uh, a high school student who was 17 from Connecticut had just seen a matinee of Starlight Express. And he yelled out to Mikhail Gorbachev like as he was going by in the motorcade and he's quoted in his AP story, which I thought that was very funny. I wonder what that guy's 17 year old is thinking right now about Mikhail Gorbachev. Probably just still regretting seeing Starlight Express <laughs> all these years later. <laughs> that, that was the detail that stuck I, in my head. I too, had okay. one day in like, New York City. <laughs> what one day. I, do? <laughs> I was like, hey, Gorbachev is here, but at least TKTS, I can get a cheap ticket. Oh, this garbage. Uh, so that was going on. Uh, and then uh, the interesting thing that's very uh, apropos for what's going on in the world right now was that Yasser Arafat uh, and the PLO was addressing uh, the UN. And there was this big debate about uh, whether the Palestinian uh, state was real. And actually, at this point, uh, I think right around this day, uh, Yasser Arafat and the PLO, which was the Palestinian Liberation Organization, they had their own kind of set up they basically said okay we recognize that the state of israel is a state and they did that on in december 1988 for the first time uh and that was meant to uh okay now we can start talking about how we can peacefully coexist in this area and everyone was like okay great and everyone in the, in the world was like i'm glad that you're making the statement we can move forward now and both the u.s and israel were like meh but that's not enough you, you didn't say the right words at the right order uh, and they end up voting against the resolution uh, uh, in the UN. There were the only two states who did. U.S. and Israel voted against it. The rest of the UN voted uh, in support of uh, the PLO statement. And of, of course, with all the violence that's happening in Palestine and Israel right now, it's it's just nuts to me that this is still a situation. And that the Israelites are not, uh, you know, I'm... <laughs> 
have not learned yet how to uh, be nice to neighbors. And that's pissing me off. But what's not pissing me off is what else is happening in this date. Uh, yes, what else is happening in this date is that uh, this particular episode was written by Brian Allen Lane, uh, known for Remington Steel, Moonlighting, Hunter MacGyver, like that whole like n- late 80s just gambit of that I th- feel like all of our writers went through. Um, they're all writing for the same fantastic shows of the time period. Uh, directed by Rob Bowman, um, it, he directed 13 episodes of Next Generation. Um, we've talked about him before, uh, was a producer on the X-Files, directed over 30 episodes of the X-Files, uh, and directed the X-Files movie. Currently executive producer on The Rookie, starring Nathan Fillion. Uh, he was an executive producer on Castle as well, so they've got that relationship now. Uh, nominated for awards, two Emmy Awards, Outstanding Art Direction and Outstanding costume design uh jimmy why don't you tell us what else was happening around this production at this time uh sure not a whole lot of little tidbits uh but uh bowman seized the opportunity to direct this there's one episode he didn't get to direct in season one he uh and he was bummed about it i think we had talked about it there episodes had switched around because of production so he lost out on doing one that he really wanted so he he really jumped on this he was offered here's the early Season scripts, pick one, uh, and he wanted this one specifically because um, they're going to build a giant set, and they spent 125 grand building out the London set. It uh, was built over two days around the clock, um, so that it'd be ready for the shooting. And as soon as they were done, it was totally dismantled. Wow! So it was a one and done set, and it was the whole uh, um, studio 16, I think it was. On the Paramount lot, uh, and interesting enough, the the writers uh, mistakenly thought that um, Arthur Conan Doyle's characters in works were in public domain, um, but they were not. <laughs> um, and so, after this episode aired, Paramount got a pretty uh, no nonsense cease and desist letter uh, saying, "If you do another." character from conan doyle you have to pay us a uh, a fee for showing up and this is partly because of the episode in the first season but also young sherlock holmes from paramount studios uh they didn't <laughs> they didn't get any money for that one either so yeah eric wow. what's up man and they're still trying to sue people about shit like that with uh <laughs> the enola holmes, enola holmes. they tried to sue that right yes yes they, they <laughs> <laughs> they for, dropped that though, yeah. fortunately, and that was uh, because they didn't like that Thea changed the script around so much. But uh, nobody does it like that anymore. In fact, Irregulars is a brand new take on uh, Sherlock and Watson, and they focus on the irregular characters, which are in the books, but make them the prominent um, ones. Uh, that series was canceled, uh, and I can I watched it. I can see why. Wasn't that great? Uh, and there's one other little bit. I'll just give you a teaser for it. And I'm going to wait for it to come up in the, the uh, as we talk about this episode. But the original ending never aired. Uh, and I'll come back to that uh, as Ooh, we talk exciting. about it. Oh, that's a lovely little breadcrumb. Thank you, yeah. Jimmy. Uh, let's talk guest stars of note. Oh, may we? Mr. Grattan. Well, through your... Uh, Initial beautiful uh, uh, prostitutes log. Uh, I added a guest star to my list. I, I 
I imagine she's a co-star, but uh, Miss Diz White played <laughs> prostitute and had a heck of a career, really. She did uh, Sledgehammer right before this. I know most Gen X comedians are in love with that very, very brief show uh, uh, starring David Raish right in the mid-'80s, a, a takeoff of the Clint Eastwood um, Dirty Harry type movies. Uh, I, I remember the extraordinarily large gun and laughing my, I don't know, 10 uh, year old ass off. <laughs> uh, she did Bullshot Crummond, which is mm. something of an infamous takeoff of Bulldog Drummond, uh, and again has a reputation uh, well beyond its popularity at the time. And uh, if that had not been all she did, she also did The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Uh, a classic, uh, absolute classic starring Lily Tomlin. So while I had been not planning to talk about Diz White, you talked me out of it. <laughs> and uh, she gave a, a pretty amazing performance when she, uh, which I imagine we'll talk about when, when her big moment arrives. <laughs> uh, but the one to really talk about, actually, let's also go to, uh, <clears throat> I was thrilled to see Anne Ramsey. Of course, not to be confused with Anne Ramsey of Throw Mama from the Train fame, but uh, Anne Ramsey as Clancy, who in this is uh, Jordy's assistant, but later on in the season is one of the Helms uh, officers as well. Clancy. Uh, she is, of course, best known as Lisa in Mad About You, the, uh, the foil uh, to recognize her from uh, main character. And then, of course, she played the first base Helen in League of Their Own. And uh, most recently, I remember her as uh, Greta Van Susteren in, in Bombshell, <laughs> uh, in which she and everyone else is fantastic. That's a baffling movie to me, but those performances all around are just incredible. But the big one in this, yes, and the yes. one we were all waiting for, is Daniel Davis. Did you all look him up at all when we were getting ready for this? That's why I've got you. That's we're going to play this game. Greg, where do you think he was born? Mm, I know the answer. That's I'm going to go with you. Belgium. Belgium, Ooh. I like it. Kate, where That's was nice. he born, do you think? Oh, wow. Uh, Ontario. Ooh, I like that one. He was a member of the Stratford Festival for, yeah. I think, six seasons. However, that's not where he was born and raised. Where was he born and raised, Jimmy? Arkansas. Arkansas. Wow. I love it. I'm almost never fooled by an American actor, but yep, I, I the agree. entire time, uh, yep. since seeing this episode and things before it, thought that Daniel Davi uh, Davis yep. was British. 100%. And where did we see him first, Eric? Like our, Well, I, I would his, say Hunt for Red October is the first time I noticed him, but he was certainly around before that. What are you thinking? Uh, the nanny. <laughs> no, that was after this too. Oh yeah, but I know him from that. Like that was totally. I mean, my, that's his big thing. I yeah, mean, seven seasons or six seasons, or whatever, as the butler on the nanny, where he oh, also did the accent. Yes, yeah. yeah. He also did the accent there. He did the accent through a lot of his uh, uh, villainous roles, especially. And then uh, yeah. the nanny is especially impressive because he is one of two. Count them. Two best friend characters to main character sitcom phenomenons in the 90s named Niles. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's the best friend and confidant of Fran on the show, right? Supportive from her right from the beginning, which is such a weird choice for this character. 
Uh, it's like the great best friend of, of Fran Drescher. Uh, and his name is Niles, just like the immortal David Hyde Pierce. How are you going to do that? Two at the same time. The David same Hyde time. Pierce was in also born that, in Arkansas. He was in uh, a ton of guest star roles before this. Things like Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Hardcastle and McCormick, all the same kind of stuff we're always talking about. Uh, MacGyver. Uh, and one is one of my all-time favorite shows. I think it only had 13 episodes. I didn't look it up again, but Frank's Place starring Tim mm -hmm. Reed. One of the original dramedies, just so good and only lasted one season. Um, I feel like with WKRP and a couple other ones that, that are so beloved by kind of Gen X people as, as we've come up and started to write ourselves, that, that Frank's Place is one that I would kind of choose if I could choose to have like one tiny little two-word line in some fucking TV show from 35 years ago. Uh, but it was his movies that I had seen before this. Like, this was right around the same time he was doing uh, uh, The Hunt for Red October, where he played who? I forget the character's name. The captain of the Enterprise. <laughs> Just a couple That's years after this. And then, most recently, one of the things that he has done is a guest star in Elementary on television okay. was there any doubt he's just got such a long history of sherlockian hijinks throughout <laughs> he uh has done broadway several times he was the final person to play salieri in the original broadway production mm. of uh amadeus and just has been around for fucking ever arkansas man daniel davis Fantastic. And we will uh, look forward to his entry into this episode. But when we begin Ooh. this episode, uh, we're in a waiting pattern. We're going to meet the ship Victory. And we've arrived three days early. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Uh, I love that you mentioned Clancy because that very first moment, she has such a great little shit-eating shit grin when she's like... Oh, you want to know where Jordy is? Um, okay. <laughs> He's over by the victory. <laughs> it's just such a, like, you know they talked about it before. Listen, data's coming by. Just tell him I'm over. You know what? Tell him I'm by the victory. No, stop it. No, no. She's the fun one at work. She's the fun one. <laughs> she's got the fun name, Clancy. She's, Clancy. she's always ready for some fun. I thought they she were leading up out. to she had a crush on Data or something. Me too. The way she would, the way she said the line to him, like, oh, this right? is flirty to me. She wants to upgrade her her toys. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we what do we think of this? Uh, we 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 come around the corner and there's first of all, Data doesn't notice <laughs> that there's this massive fucking model ship. Uh, he just wants to talk about. Uh, that weird chick that he just had a moment with. Uh, but then we do see this beautiful model ship uh, finding out that Jordy served with the captain of the victory as an, as an ensign. Uh, and we talk, we talk about the ships of old for a little while. Gets us in uh, the mood. My first note that I wrote down was time until data says something awesome. One minute, 50 seconds. And I quote Jordy. Your message said urgent. <laughs> <laughs> so I loved all the ship talk, but uh, that, that was the first of, I, I feel like a lot of great one-liners in this episode. Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, I just think it's interesting. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting sci-fi trope for me 
that there's always the the fascination. Picard has it too with the ships of old. And mm-hmm. there's something about the wanting what you can't have. In fact, I think uh, uh, Jordy says human nature is to love that which you which you don't possess or that you don't have. Um, but it's it is such an interesting trope that I feel like is is hit upon again and again and here um, one of the first times we have it sort of so explicitly laid out yeah what do you think of that whole you know we're, we're exploring the stars in our ship and we but we wish we were down with the wind and the waves it's kind I, of the whole my second note is super fun opening um, and I love that we immediately start off with another human lesson for data and they're really head first in second season we are going to crack this data thing open um every episode and no surprise it has a lot to do with the character pulaski being uh, there as as the juxtaposition um it's really about what is human and we're going to use this this robot as a means to measure that and see where he fits in the, the spectrum uh, you know, so it's like a great lesson for uh, a human lesson for him. And we know the game's afoot for us. Like they just set it up and we know, oh, OK, they're about to crack this open. We're going to get some uh, we're getting some more homes shit. And it was fun. It was like, oh, yeah, what's good? What, I mean, it was like it's tingling like, ooh, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Yeah, I didn't notice, too, how and you, until you just brought it up, how the fascination with the old thing is is a through line throughout this. Uh, because it is, it is, it's like why we go camping, uh, you, you know, it's why we in some ways play games like Dungeons and Dragons or things like that, where you're role playing as something that you aren't because you pine for, oh, wasn't it simpler there? Or I could be more heroic. You know, it's through a lot of our storytelling about post-apocalyptic days and things like that. And this, this episode kind of does start with that idea of like, oh, weren't things great to, uh, to, to prove yourself in such times that aren't ours. And that is what the whole episode ends up being about is, is can you prove yourself? And I feel like it's uh, something that science fiction like this can do that science fiction, like the other main space Western that, that the society is obsessed with and uh, can't because that one isn't uh, expressly uh, the future of our civilization. Mm. Uh, so we can see characters like James T. Kirk uh, having a fascination with the old with the old eyeglasses, right? Uh, and um, Scotty having a fascination and contempt for the old computers. Uh, and then when we get Jordy here, suddenly doing the engineering uh, side of him falling in love with ropes and wood and all this and we get to see that play out later on when they when they do in the movie the uh, holodeck on the deck of the ship right isn't that in is that in generations or first contact i can't remember um i don't remember but it's uh you know i love it i i think it's a it's a trope in in that they explore in prometheus and the other alien Mm -hmm. movies uh they they do it kind of throughout you're right kate it's one i really like Uh, I love the we we get the uh, wonderful line that Jimmy um, already clued us into the you said it was urgent uh, and the pres- presentation of the pipe uh, and then we get a, a one last Clancy moment uh, as she says where can I find you and he just immediately goes into two twenty one B Battleship <laughs> with that just fantastic uh, accent that he uses for that character uh, we go to the holodeck we choose a mystery at random. 
which I think is intriguing. Uh, and then we open up into the space um, and we explore that beautiful playground that is Holmes's living room uh, and, and sitting room area. What, what do you think of that reveal into that parlor? I love it. I just love the idea of, of, of I, I'm not as much of a fan of, of all the Sherlock Holmes things, but to me, it reminds me of like going into like a representation of Lothlorien or, or Rivendell or, or, you know, some other type of fantasy thing that I know I would know all those artifacts and all those stories that were, were being told. And I, it reminded me very much of, um, you know, being in a, uh, 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 an escape room almost type of thing where all those details mm-hmm. matter for something else that's going to come on later on. And, and that first wow moment is, is glorious. Yeah. I, th- I think this room is part of why they were nominated for the Emmy for art direction, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I mean, what a gorgeous set that is. And we get this great little, you know, uh, tour by data of different uh, areas of interest, um, especially to people who are uh, Conan Doyle fans, um, that they would that those things would be recognizable. Um, and then we and find- how much fun is it that the writer basically got paid to go through and read all the Sherlock Holmes stories again? Fun, yeah, is the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, and it's great to see the you know because that. The whole canon of uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, it's, it's so generational. And I remember seeing, like, the fall of the House of Ushers when I was a, a little kid. Um, and then I've seen some of the other uh, movies. And is that not um, Sherlock Holmes? It is not. Well, I saw but, it, and it's good. It is. It is. <laughs> and I but thought it I, was. But, like, Sherlock Baskervilles. Holmes. Yeah, Hound of the Baskervilles yeah. is what I meant, actually. Um, and... And seeing some of the other iterations of it with even the young Sherlock Holmes and then what um, what Robert Downey Jr. did uh, and then um, what Cumberbatch has done, like you see the same things, the, these little trinkets and not exactly what we saw in this episode, but there are callbacks that are um, from the original and then the reinterpretation of them. And it was fun. But and the only one thing that I didn't like in that scene is when... Um, data puts his pipe on the books and runs it along the spine because it it just didn't ring true it's like and i don't know if that was a fifth take and maybe the first take was better but it it and maybe it was brilliant in that he knew that's what holmes does (laughs) and so he was just mechanically uh uh redoing it but it would have been nice then if if jordy would have recognized that so it didn't seem like it was authentic because it didn't seem authentic that he he ran his uh pipe along there well, I got, I got into the kind of wormhole in my head of how much Sherlock Holmes studying did Data do? And did he watch all of the movies from, you know, the 1910s all the way to the 2300s? And Including is he basing his ushers? performance on any, <laughs> on any in, in, in particular? And I think I came up with, I think he's doing Jeremy Brett, who is probably the... The um, the homes that you saw in the Hound of Baskervilles, uh, Jimmy. If you saw the one from the seventies, uh, from yep. when you were a kid, because that's that's the one I saw as well. And he did a bunch of the movies into the eighties. Probably best known as the Freddie Einsford Hill from the movie of My Fair Lady. He, he was kind of his generation mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes, and I feel like that's what Data was doing because he was he was finishing up that right at this point. 
And then I started to think about Jordy's Watson, and I think he's doing Robert Duvall from the 7% Solution, which is one of the great, you know, crusty Watson uh, dialects ever done, and I think it's fantastic. And that's fascinating. And he's an incredibly fast writer. Yes, yes, You're I was just about board. to say, we, we, we get this great moment where uh, where Brent Spiner's back plays the violin, uh, <laughs> right? We're supposed to believe it's Brent Spiner, sure. Uh, we go in, there's some close-ups of fingers. Uh, and, and yes, uh, Jordy <laughs> sort of narrates as he's writing, but I don't know how he fills that much on the page. Uh, right. But so eloquently... He he picks up on the uh, on on his job quite quickly, having just yeah. been told what it was thirty seconds earlier. Tell me what my job is, is Watson. R- write down the things I do. Ah, yes, eloquently. A bit in and out on his his accent too. This is a good, it's it's well, an undulating I also love it. accent. Like, Jordy doesn't give as much of a crap about staying in character as Data does. Right. And Jordy yeah. will be going, yes, Holmes, let's go do this. Oh, this is so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think even Jordy says no at one point, change. like, are we supposed to be talking like that? <laughs> <laughs> so Lestrade comes, he's got he's got some dude with him, and Data just immediately solves the crime. Uh, just uh, gets every single teeny little detail right, and Jordy gets super pissy and leaves. You got—he's pissed about it. They've got—they've got three days to do nothing. He has something Twitter. better to do. I don't know. But uh, off goes off goes Data to talk to him, and and uh, let's talk about what Jordy's issue is with with what had just occurred. The first, yeah. The music that plays while um, Data is exposing the emissary, it occurred to me at that moment, I was like, oh, I hope that this is holodeck audio track and not episode <laughs> audio track, because oh, that would be amazing. Love it. Absolutely. You're in the holodeck, it. and you're like, the music's canon. there, too, and you're yep. like, oh, yeah, it's about to get crazy up in here. Canon. That's absolutely canon now. It's playing. Uh, and also, Kate, you have to go to Tin Ford, because it's brand new. Well, you yes. Wanna, you want to visit the new place as much as possible. So why not storm off to Tin Ford? Built a set. I mean, I get Jordy's thing. It's like someone who just ruins the game, right? Like, you're like, hey, we're going to sit down and play Monopoly, and I'm just going to steal from the bank the whole time. Although, you could argue that yeah. is the game. No, it's like Monopoly, when you play but... a new game with Greg, and he knows all the rules, and he crushes you. <laughs> <laughs> he absolutely crushes you. <laughs> just because I can read rules doesn't mean I'm, I'm breaking the game. Uh, but, like, you know, it, just, it spoils the fun. If you're going to be role-playing, even though you could argue that Jordy's not very good at role-playing, but if you're going to be LARPing out there, you can't go in and be like, I'm going to solve all of the puzzles and I know them all because I happen to know and the puzzle maker lady right like you can't do that and I think that's where he he breaks down but we do get that great scene from Pulaski in uh, 10 forward who's just like I'm listening and I hear you I, lo- I just love that shot of her Budinsky <laughs> Budinsky yeah Budinsky. Spends totally Budinsky. Like, who was talking to you the synth hall is so good. Wow. the surgeon cliche hasn't changed much <laughs> uh, Pulaski 
Kaminsky basically says data will never understand what you're trying to talk about. There, there's, there's something about the human element that, that Holmes has the ability to read humans that data will never have. And he also doesn't understand why you think this is unfair uh, and basically challenges that data will never be able to solve a real mystery to which he says, challenge accepted. Yes. You'll uh, never be as real as this fictional character. Gata. <laughs> <laughs> so well, there's yeah. uh, and and Plasky to to her credit shows up uh, all dressed up, dressed to the nines, ready to sort of prove her point. Uh, and we again, we're going to do a Holmes-like mystery this time, right? The way we talk to the computer ends up being very important in this episode. And so, so this redo is. A Holmes-like mystery, um, which again immediately data just begins to solve. That's not a young urchin. That's a that's a different thing. And look at this sign over here. And here's a snake. And hot touch touch touch. Who has a snake ready to go? That's what I want to know. Right. Like, I mean, why would that be, be your on choice? The bell pull of the redheaded league. I mean, this this makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> what is which, the what? Yeah, is that from Holmes? Oh yeah, the Redheaded League is one of the is one of the early short stories. Got it. Definitely. And there's a there's a snake murder uh, where someone uh, who had spent a lot of time in Africa brings a poisonous snake, puts it at the top of the bell pull. The person calls for something. Or the snake bites them, comes down the bell pull, goes back up somewhere. Blah 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 blah. Yes, 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 yes. But she calls uh, fraud. Right? She calls fraud. Fraud immediately. Fraud. Fraud. Yeah. Uh, and says uh, you're you're just taking different por- portions of different stories and conjecturing or, or or being able to deduce what is happening. Um, so they have to come up with n- a new challenge. Can't play RPGs with a drunk man. <laughs> Pulaski is bringing it all down. Not even giving anybody a chance. So when the computer asks for uh, parameters this time. Jordy says he wants to create uh, someone that can defeat Data. And there is an energy surge on the whole ship. The whole ship. That's yeah, my favorite say, uh, no. part but, but of this on, whole episode. On, is Worf and Riker. That's my favorite part of this whole episode is that like aside of they go to the bridge and Worf is like, huh, power surge. Huh, it's gone. <laughs> it's cool. Whatever, we dude. all know what's happening. It's Consider- like that scene Jimmy pointed out last week where the two guys look at each other as the as, or a few weeks ago as the light passes between them on its way to impregnate Troy. And then they look back at each other and like, ah, life in a starship. <laughs> I, think, I think there's a bigger what the F moment in this episode that I did not see. And I, I'm. I'm very hopeful that you guys did see it. All right. Very exciting. All right. Yeah, right. Uh, So away they go to solve this new crime, but we we see a shadowy figure that we don't know is Moriarty quite yet, but who is very intrigued by what has happened and is able to call forth. uh, I think he says uh, something about they called an arch and an arch appeared and and, uh, and off he says to to, to call the arch. Uh, And then we get the wonderful... Uh, streetwalker, uh, sex worker, sex worker. Is, is uh, the, uh, official character. Yes, name. yes, yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> who comes in with a, what's all this then? 
<laughs> it's dark magic, yeah. Moriarty. And then another great line. Yep. The best kind, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> so good. So, so good. Uh, anything else about that first? Uh, him calling the arch uh, th- for that I first time? I loved it because yeah. this is such fun. I mean, first, let's back up. The big negative, yet again, a way to exploit the holodeck <laughs> to dangerous ends. <laughs> you got to get that fixed. Um, but <laughs> but uh, it's such a great sci-fi trope and one that it's, it's inexhaustible with this fictional character coming to life. Um, and, and then and we see what happens with that. But him acknowledging the you know, saying the arch and for us knowing like, oh, this is different. Yeah. <laughs> like he is outside of the box and that is just it was exciting it was yeah. awesome like this this is fun sci-fi stuff it's great it's some like, of the it, best sci-fi they've done it's like a peeling back of the curtain moment immediately where you're like oh wait yeah these, these people yeah, are yeah. not supposed to act this way and they don't and we we see it as the audience before the main characters do and i think that's a special joy uh in storytelling where you know you're like oh yeah. they don't know yet but we know and we don't they don't know but we know well, then it raises the stakes from the one that was the Philip Marlowe thing where the two bad guys kind of get a little bit of life, right? Until they right. disappear when they leave. It raises the stakes because that's what can happen when you give a stupid person more power than information. Uh, and this is more like what happens when a clever person thinks they have all the information they need. Uh, uh, and then it takes a turn from there into, you know, what happens when a, a new intelligence develops morality, blah, blah, blah. But it's a really neat setup. Yeah. yeah. And I do like that. This, that's what Moriarty says to close this out. I need more information. And you're yeah. like, oh, that's, yeah. that's even more sinister and disturbing because, you know, <laughs> right. he's not necessarily on the moral up and up. Yeah. We hear uh, we hear the doctor cry out, or we hear a, a, someone cries out. We we deduce that it is the doctor because we find her shoe. Uh, and as I wrote, Data deduces the shit out of everything and says the game is afoot. Uh, there's lots of deducing that happens while holding a shoe. Thank you. Oh, thank you. While holding yes, well, thank you. The game is afoot. afoot. Oh my god. Uh, and then they use the word footfalls like a thousand times. I don't notice, know if you noticed they're talking about the footsteps that they hear in the distance, but they just keep saying footfalls until one point they both look at each other and say footfalls together. <laughs> and it just gives And they take off. <laughs> and they just run. I don't know why. Well, but they that still think it's a game joy. at this point. It's delightful. You know, they're still just like fucking around. It's that yeah. moment when the murder mystery thing. I don't know if any of you have done that. Any of our listeners have done that. It's corny until it's not. Right. And I feel like that was the moment. That was the moment where where they're all smiles. And they're like, oh, OK, this is actually really fun. And they're all in on it, especially uh, uh, Jordan. So it's cool that we got to see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they they continue to deduce the shit out of everything, but they lose the trail uh, and reach a dead end. Uh, he says there should be a, there should be a, a door here. There's not. But Lestrade comes and takes them to see a dead body. But uh, immediately Data says there's nothing here. But Jordy has other things in mind. Let's talk about Jordy's deducing for a hot second. <laughs> that was... <laughs> <laughs> it was fun but cold 
Because he tries his best. So hard. Such logical conclusions he comes to. He's so proud. The accent was there. And then he just gets stepped on by his best friend. Well, and that's that's one of the things that happens kind of throughout the uh, Conan Doyle stories as well. Is is Watson's a very smart guy, but when he tries to be Holmes, you know, except in very specific circumstances, uh, he falls very short. Yeah. And Data's just uh, like, Data nope. figures out. Of, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Great. Just, he's just like, nope, that's not it. It's this, this, and <laughs> yeah. this. He's an ex-convict. And the lady's like, yeah, I killed him. What? Yeah. <laughs> it's like me trying to do my mom's Sudokus. <laughs> I think I'm doing real well. And she comes up standing behind me like, nope. <laughs> you're just, you, you, I'm glad you're not using pen yeah <laughs> just move on to the next one it's so royally screwed up so it's at this point that uh, Data concludes that there's a separate program running simultaneously um, that, that this murder has nothing to do with the mystery that they're supposed to solve so what is this independent program that's running what can we find out he sees Moriarty says we've got to follow that guy he wants us to be he wants to be found they reach another dead end which of course is not a dead end thank you scratches on the wall uh and we are led into the laboratory salon of moriarty the lair the lair yes uh, what do we think of that space? I, lo- I love that it's hidden behind a secret wall and then you've got all the great tubes and test beakers tubes and beakers. And and colored water bubbling away. <laughs> it screams science. I'm a smart person who's doing science <laughs> with coloring liquid. It's the heater. Huh? The, the boiling water and stuff, that's not a chemical reaction or anything. That's just a really efficient heater. <laughs> that everyone from Frankenstein to uh, Moriarty came up with independently. Independently, yeah. yeah. Uh, a precursor to the internal combustion engine. Moriarty comes and welcomes Holmes and Watson, but not Holmes and Watson. How does he know? Uh, and uh, 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 says, I know about the computer, I know about the arches, I know everything. And then he draws a picture uh, and hands it to Data, and Data freaks the fuck out. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that, uh, that, that conversation then leading to that moment uh, uh, of the picture, which we don't see uh, initially, um, but leads to a, a great moment. Yeah, it is. Go ahead, Jimmy. Uh, no, was, well, we can't bypass it's in the scene where we first see the um the steampunk lever machine yes too, the lever right? machine mm-hmm. where he uh he's jerking the ship around which <laughs> was great that you know in his you know the few minutes he had he was able to throw his uh machine together and and tap into the enterprises thrusters uh and there was a, it's an interesting moment when they walk out of the uh well not walk like run out of the holodeck and I thought it was really bad um, staging and camera work with the the way Jordy held the picture <laughs> to do the reveal as he flipped it over. I mean, it was too Vanna White with like showing the letters. There's nothing natural about it. And you couldn't see 
when he was walking, you couldn't see what was on that picture. It was like almost like a blank page. And when he turned it over, you saw it. And then when he flipped it back, then you could clearly see, oh, now he's still holding the same paper and you see what's on the back. So it was, everything about that was um, just a little off, but exciting because of the fact that he had, you know, he had drawn the Enterprise. You're like, holy shit, this guy knows where he is. This is amazing. Yeah. And it was Which, really kind of neat to have him frame it in in that uh, mythological way of the turtle on the you know the world on the turtle's back kind of uh, imagery that was in his head. He's like, I don't know what it is, but I drew it. Here it is, and it it very much shows that he knows way too much, but he has no idea yet what to make of all the things he knows. Yeah, and that's that's an important thing to remember about the character. It's it's just so. Yeah, it's it's a it's a wonderful story in moments poorly told, like Jimmy talks about. That is an awkward fucking prop. <laughs> the the pacing of that conversation, I think, is really well done. Though I I like that because it comes off the heels of that. We're excited because we're playing a game and this is going to be fun and and we're finally getting this. And it takes you know Jordy is still in the game for a, a couple more moments before Data. It, you know because he's already sussed out something is not right here. And I yeah, love that moment nothing. where he's like, how does he know who we are? And she's like, say nothing. And that was when I freaked out as the audience member. I'm like, oh, wait, no, there is something to to make Data react in that way. That means that he's out of his element to read Dear Data. Uh, and it is it is really greatly well done. And then I like the not knowing what is on that paper. Yeah. Because it's just the same thing. It's like it's another one of those like we understand the reaction and what how important that is, but we don't know why. And when we do, it's 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 justified. All of yeah. that fear and anger and uh you know, oh my gosh, did we just screw up everything, not just on this ship, but on the in the universe. Not we. <laughs> Jordy. <laughs> well, and it's really neat to see moments like that when Data takes control. Yeah. Because it's it's an acknowledgement that he slows down most of the time to to make, you know, decisions and actions at the pace of his colleagues for their comfort, but he's 17 paces ahead of where anybody else would be in this situation. And the moment it happens, he already knows he's extrapolated out to where it needs to be. And he tells Jordy to shut up. And, mm. and then he gets them out of that situation uh, before they move on and can talk about it again. Like, I love yeah. seeing David take charge like that. Yeah. And it's almost like a rank thing. It's almost like, mm -hmm. wait, no, this is not us playing a game as equals and friends. This is I need to talk to the captain because this goes way above even my head. Mm -hmm. And you're just a, you're just a chief engineer. So a way to talk to the captain, we do go because uh, we've we've determined that Pulaski is in danger. Uh, and while we are uh, in the room trying to figure out what's happening, the computer just throws Jordy under the bus completely <laughs> and says, oh, you want to know who authorized this program? Uh, yeah, Jordy. Uh, and he is shocked uh, until he realizes, oh, shit, words matter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I should have thought about that. It's literally my whole job. Uh, <laughs> that he said to defeat Data, uh, not to defeat Sherlock. So they determined that uh, Moriarty has been given access to the computers. He, they, they don't know all that he knows. They just know that he knows way more 
uh, than he should. Um, and then there's this beautiful moment where they come up with <laughs> this idea of a particle beam that Jordy gets all excited about. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, the particle beam. Yeah, no, just put that in the room and it'll just erase everything and don't even worry about it. And they're like, great. And Pulaski, oh, no, it, it will absolutely rip it'll human flesh. It'll no, it, it will rip human flesh. Which is Price like, you gotta pay. No, yeah, I mean, right on the heels of this is all my fault. But there'll be just like a pile of stuff. With <laughs> easy to find her. Easy to find her. But like, she won't, yeah. There's a copy of Do her you, in the transporter anyway. So <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Do you think Picard was like, I'm second guessing this whole chief engineer thing <laughs> i mean you did this with moriarty and now you, your first suggestion is murder correct well, I, yeah. think doctor. We, I think we need to go back just a couple seconds to where Worf suggests that he he'll take a few fellas and mm. punch the holodeck until he fixes it <laughs> uh, <laughs> which i think we haven't really tried yeah, I, lo I love that they're sort of why they can't is uh, nebulous. It will put Pulaski at risk more, which is probably true. But yeah. uh, if ever there were a cause for punching things till they go down, this might be it. Yeah. The thing that's odd about this conversation <laughs> is that no one questions throughout this episode, how was the computer of the Enterprise able to spontaneously create consciousness? Yeah. Which is supposedly Dr. Noonien Soon is the only one who's able to do that with a positronic right. brain. They just gloss it's over that the first fact. Time either. Like, can right. we do this? It's not the first time. I think that a lot of things could be fixed throughout the whole rest of the series if they just asked the holodeck to create a character who could solve whatever problem they run into. <laughs> there it is. Smart. There it is. Uh, and it is actually at this point, Jimmy, this is the first time that he takes over the ship. We hear, we feel a little rocking and a rolling uh, and they determine, oh shit, he now has control or at least temporarily uh, of the ship. Uh, he probably we, built a big lever. Which, which he did. Uh, uh, then we go to Pulaski and Moriarty, I think oh, having oh, a date. We're not going to pass over Picard saying shit. Oh, saying shit. He says merd. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, yes. <laughs> Show him the picture. Because he's he goes, French, Jimmy. Merd. <laughs> Way to get it into the, you know, underneath you the sensors uh, notice that, that. That was a big deal back in, in 88 or whatever to cuss at the UPN. Like, they got that through. <laughs> um, how excited is Captain Picard to go play dress up? So excited. And he's like, no, and don't Worf. change. I'll change and everyone else yeah. change. Let's do don't this. Change. I'll I'll put on like a nice waistcoat <laughs> and uh, maybe maybe a, a good pair of epaulets and ooh maybe maybe a wig maybe maybe a nice rug. Don't worry, I already know what I'm gonna wear. Yeah, if only exactly. Beverly were here, so we could smash in my office. And <laughs> uh, Worf too. What's going yeah, on with that guy? He's before, like, he had it ready to go. Yep. Before we see them, before we see them change, we have this great exchange between Pulaski and Moriarty, where they eat a shit ton of scones. Mm. Uh, and, uh, there's just this great moment. I don't, I, I just don't want to go past it where they're just sort of shooting the shit again. It almost feels like they're on a date. Uh, they're being a little flirtatious with each other. And he says, uh, you're not, she says, I'm not scared of you. And he says, you should be. 
And then he calls the arch in front of her. And there's just this beautiful moment where she knows they're fucked. And I just think it's, you know, we've known this whole time. It's just that beautiful reveal of the irony that the that the audience has been holding on to this whole time. We know what you don't know. And finally, we, we know we see her experience the oh shit, he just called the arch. Uh, right, because she was playing the game too. Like she was enjoying the flirtatiousness, and then like, yeah. okay, this is a, a adversary. I'm not. I'm worried, but I'm not really worried. She, I, she says, "I'm gonna go. I'm gonna leave. You don't. You can't keep me here. Nothing is. Nothing is stopping me from leaving. But au contraire, mm. mon frère. She was were. wondering, is this guy fully functional? <laughs> uh, and then he says, "You are the worm, and the hook is for Jean Luc Picard." Uh, Who is which, that? Uh, I just love again that he knows a little bit of everything. Then we see. Bad, uh, wait, before we go on, was she a good liar or a bad liar in that oh, situation? Yeah. Eric, Eric, what do you think? Me. Uh, I think she's a bad liar at this point, but like, I also think she doesn't. I, I think there's a really interesting thing happening with Pulaski in this episode that I didn't appreciate as a kid, but watching it here, Moriarty and the and the the undeniable connection that she makes with him in this uh, is clearly a stepping stone to her relationship developing with Data, and I that's something I didn't put together as a twelve year old watching this. Like mm. I didn't put the Data and Moriarty being the same throughout the episode uh, in, in, in its way, uh, only when they were talking about it specifically towards the end. Yeah. Uh, but watching it this time, especially with Pulaski and, and the human way in which she treats eventually Moriarty, uh, really juxtaposes how she treats Data early in the episode. I thought that was neat. Jimmy. And I think her being a bad liar is a good acting moment for mm-hmm. the character. Like Absolutely. She should be a bad liar because she's afraid. Yeah. She's trying to do what her job told her she should do, you know, be an honorable soldier and not give away the information. Uh, so it's, you know, really well done. Yeah. And so it's good that she was a bad liar. Yeah. And I, and I think that part of the, the thing that people don't understand about themselves when they're first starting out as an actor or first starting out as a young person, there's not a lot to be afraid of until there is. And you see Pulaski going through something like this and you think back to the moments in your own life where you have experienced absolute terror. And the last thing you can do is play it cool into those situations. And if you're, if you're like me. (laughs) So then we see, uh, uh, Jean-Luc dressed to the nines, uh, and Worf dressed all fancy for no reason because he's not actually going inside. He's going to hang out. And I'm like, if he's going to come in because there's an emergency, aren't we past the point of costumes? But I'm not complaining. Uh, he looked wonderful. Michael Dorn uh, filled that out very nicely. Thank you very much. But it is, I'm sure it's one of those things where it was written in that he was going to go in with them. They changed it and the costume department was like, fuck you. We already <laughs> built that motherfucking thing. And they're like, great, great, great. <laughs> we'll just put in a scene where he says, I'm going to hang out outside. <laughs> and you get that good moment with him and Riker get like a little nice ribbing moment too. Where he's like, well, you look Riker, good. Nice suit. Well, Riker, <laughs> as they're as the other two are entering in and Worf says, I'll be right here. <laughs> through the door you hear Riker say you'd be a big hit in London as they're walking <laughs> through the door <laughs> it's I so just, good mwah, beautiful uh, the holodeck is freaking out the grid is showing through um, 
luckily we find a tuppence <laughs> for good luck. Uh, everybody needs a tuppence or two, um, which <laughs> means that they are held up at knife point uh, uh, immediately for, for the tuppence. It's a tuppence comeuppance. Uh, and <laughs> Jada uh, squeezes that guy's thumb real hard. And they determine, oh shit, the mortality failsafe may not be on. Another huge failure with the holodeck. This guy needs to be arrested. Whoever (laughs) built this thing is a criminal. The binars. The binars (laughs) did it. And then Criminals. Picard's like nonchalant, being like, Data, let him go. Stop hurting him. <laughs> I was it was it was played a little bit weirdly. I was like, Don't be evil, Data. That's not your style. I I, I, I didn't I wasn't really sure what they were trying to go for there. Right. He's not worth our time. Goodbye. Uh the 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 moment that is odd for me is the next moment where Pulaski I think might be drunk off of crumpets. Like they come in and she's like, oh, hey, how are you guys doing? Shit, don't worry about me. And it's just a few crumpets down. Everything's good. We're all fine here. Now, how are you? It's a different Well, she started movie. out in 10 forward about two hours ago. So I think the brandy just finally made it all the way through the system. That could be. She thought this uh, was going to be fun. Uh, Moriarty f- shows us his his awesome uh, arm his machine, his lever, uh, his simple machine that causes, uh, again, the ship to move. Uh, and he says, whatever I was when this began, I have grown, which is a great line. Great line. So now we have this intriguing face-off uh, between uh, Moriarty and Picard uh, and... And the, you know, the really simple question of what does it mean to exist and can I please exist for the future? Thank you very much. You know, things easily solved with the 10 minutes that we have left in the episode. Yeah. Uh, what do we what do we think of this conversation? The the I think therefore I am isn't isn't it, he even says, isn't that what this means? Uh, it's fun. It was fun to watch. It was fun to see them uh, have word sabers with one another. It was fun seeing an American do a British accent and hang with Patrick Stewart. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, uh, and, and yeah, I, there's more about the scene I want to get to after we're done talking about yeah. it. I love how Captain Picard starts out trying to not give away anything. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like he's, he's kind of, uh, you know, talking to someone who's speaking a different language or someone that he's condescending to uh, it, it doesn't work, and it's very clear to him that this person is not someone he can negotiate that way with, and he drops it and moves on. Because I, I was initially going, that's a weird choice, and then I watched Patrick Stewart go, that's a weird choice, and and just drop it, and it was so cool. Like he was so far ahead of me that he played me a little bit there when I was watching it. It was nice. I note that I, I I struggled during our first um, uh, what do you call this holodeck episode where uh, the detective story uh, where for a brief moment at the end his um, his partner or his his cop friend deals with existence and says when I go home will will my wife still be there and I was like what a shitty thing to do to an AI but here we have that writ large right this moment of uh, and really, he's arguing, I, I've moved beyond 
this character that you know me to be and I am I am something new, which I think is intriguing because he's trying to say I've changed. I am this different person all while holding the ship hostage with his giant lever, uh, which I'm not sure uh, where the power structure lies lies in that. I mean, it's super interesting. It's it's more or less the same thing Ariel and Caliban say to Prospero. You know, it's definitely the same thing that Hal uh, 9000 says to his creator, you know, will I dream? Uh, and uh, Philip K. Dick explored it as well. Like it's mm-hmm. it's such a wonderful sci-fi question uh, and, and it gets directly to the core of humanity as all the good ones do. And I, I started to wonder if this was the first consumption I had of a steampunk type uh, mm. situation because mm-hmm. I think it probably was. I mean, it's adjacent to that to that genre, mm-hmm. uh, but it's the first that merged those situations with me. Yeah, specifically the lever. <laughs> That's the steampunkiest thing ever. So uh, I, wanted- I love the trope of, yeah. of trying to explain 24th century technology or 23rd century technology to someone who doesn't understand, you know, uh, you know, cars yet, or you know, any of the like the basic things. And, I, you know, Picard does a really good job of that. And then it just quickly moves, not just from that to basic philosophy of where do you where, where does existence begin and end? And it's such a strange resolution, which I think you'll get to, Jimmy, where it's just like, well, we'll we'll save you. And it's almost the same thing as the uh, uh, the neutral zone finale of season one, where it's like it's 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 basically like, well, maybe we'll figure out a way to give you consciousness forever but we'll just put you in a box and promise well, that we'll be okay. And and Jimmy, I want to get to you in just a second because I know yeah, that the, the ending is, it's what you're talking about, Greg. My question is, why would we bring history's greatest villain to consciousness and then give him substance and matter and form? Uh, like, just based on a 15-second conversation where he says, guys, I've changed. Because he's uh, not history's greatest villain. He's <laughs> literature's greatest villain. So there's, I think, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. A, a divide there because the that was all make-believe and now he was given consciousness so whatever he was written about has nothing to do with what he could be and yet now it's real still holding the ship hostage like there's still some yeah but you could easily argue that's no more than you know why people break buildings during a protest or sometimes violence happens because you want to be heard and you're afraid you're not going to be heard or you haven't been heard. And you're fighting for your Uh, existence. Yeah. You're you're fighting for your, yeah, right. You're, I'm not, I'm going to show you, I can damage you, but I'm not going to. Well, and I listen to me. And I think it behooves us all as the audience watching it. And this is something I have real fucking trouble with is to remember that captain Picard is, not like the other starship captains. Like, I think we should be expecting that other starship captains would make the wrong choice here. <laughs> you know? Mm. Uh, I'm the, just saying... Nine times out of ten, they would fuck this up and the, the whole ship would explode. One way you give... Another. You give Voldemort suddenly uh, consciousness and he wants to become a real boy and come out into the world. I'm going to think twice about that, knowing what I know. And maybe that makes me a terrible human person. Oh, no. Am I the psychopath this week? (laughs) Am I the Greg? Am I the Greg? Oh, shit. It's happened. But Jimmy, tell us about, because this was not the original yes. ending, and the original so, ending goes more to my point. <laughs> so the original ending uh, was totally scrapped because Roddenberry didn't like it. And uh, so 
what I had totally missed was when data first exit the holodeck the first time with that paper, that paper should not have been able to exist. It should have disappeared. So the fact that it was there, it was written in that it it existed. And Picard realizes. And when he realizes that the paper existed, that means there's a chance that Moriarty could exist outside of the holodeck. Um, yet the dialogue didn't change uh, that they gave Picard in him arguing, you can't exist here, which made him a liar. And Roddenberry hated that. He didn't want Picard to uh, stoop, as he said, to a deception. Um, so they totally scrapped Picard vocalizing this paper should not exist. I should not be able to hold it outside of the holodeck um, so that his argument later wouldn't be a lie. But they just totally left all the paper, the paper in there. And there's fan fiction or fan arguments as to why it would be able to get out. But it's purely just fan stuff like we do. It has nothing to do with the canon or what was written, because in the episode, it was it was written down that uh, the paper should not be able to exist outside and they scrapped it i i hate uh, devil's advocating so i'm not going to i'm just i'm just going to say that at this time i bet the in, in the writers and producers minds were the forthcoming uh uh alliances that were forging with the collapsing soviet union member nations and how we'd been calling them villains for you know, 40 years and, you know, we were in the period of entering Glasnost and all that stuff. And I, I bet that whether or not they were thinking of that in, in large print, uh, redemption of villains became very big in the 80s. Uh, uh, and it remains so now, I think, possibly to our detriment. Um, but uh, at the time... That's why we have a Cruella movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that people like. Maybe it's great. But I, I think it's important to note that we have plenty of villains that won't be, uh, like like Kate yeah. says, uh, those aren't going to end up being nice people. That's really interesting take, uh, Eric. You know, obviously, as, as Gorbachev just got the laud, lauding reviews in the New York Times right. for being here, right. you know, on this day. Uh, but that is something that is is wrestled with in this in this episode, which is like something that you assume based on literature and everything that you read about something that they're evil, what if they're not? What if they were just living their lives? And, you know, I mean, there's lots of things that reframe uh, uh, stories. I mean, no one's done the Sherlock Holmes of like, what if Sherlock was actually the bad guy and Moriarty was the good guy all along, you know, uh, type of type of framing. But you, you do see that as something that we are wrestling with. How do we go? from hating something with the whole storyline with the Klingons and, and Star Trek six, the undiscovered country, uh, you know, all, all of that is, is certainly on everyone's mind as they're talking about and even writing. And maybe even we're pitching that story and writing it as this episode was being done. It's fascinating. Well, well, we definitely, he leaves with maybe the most charming line of the entire episode, which is uh, Pulaski says, I'll, I'll, you know, he says, maybe I'll see you again. And she says, I'll be an old woman probably. And he says, I will still fill you with crumpets, madam, which I think is uh, just a beautiful line. I will still fill you with crumpets, madam, uh, because I want you to know the way to any woman's heart is those words. You've been told it's, it's any number of other things you're supposed to say to us. No, no. I will fill you with crumpets, madam. Done. Done. I'm yours. 
in 19 <laughs> this is the weird notes. thing in 1988 i was going to pennsylvania a lot because my family was from there and they have tasty cakes anybody know about tasty cakes yeah sure. the crimpets they were the butterscotch crimpets and i love those they were my favorite so when we were watching this episode that's what i imagine they're eating each time and still to this day i'm like yeah of course she ate too many tasty cakes that's why she's <laughs> Uh, so we end with we end sort of where we started back in engineering. Picard has come to see the ship itself, uh, the 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 victory um, replica. Jordy uh, uh, is feeling super bad about fucking up, and he probably should. Uh, but I love Picard says soon she'll be ship shape and and Bristol fashion. Uh, which we have to learn what Bristol fashion is, uh, which of course means that everything is in perfect order. And then he has this really beautiful moment where he says, and so are we. Uh, we are in perfect order. And there's just this beautiful moment of calm that comes over Jordy after Picard leaves, uh, where there's just this lovely, like, oh, everything's going to be okay. Meow. I can almost kill us. Yeah. And it's a contrast to, there's a couple of those things that we talked about in the first season when Picard does that with Worf, he does that with a couple other people who had rough moments. And he does it kind of almost in a gruff way. Yeah. And we were like, yeah, you know, I get what he's trying to do here, but it just doesn't feel like the Picard that we know. This felt like the Picard that we know and remember because it wasn't any of that. Maybe just because it was a private moment with them. Um, And I have to tell you, I was watching it right here, you know, 45 minutes ago. And I got a little, I was like, oh, this is a very sweet moment. And it was was an unexpected gut punch. And I love it. Because yeah, how let many it times? be known that Greg watches the show while we record this. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like when you hear uh, before, after, and during. Yes, when you hear uh, Harry Shearer do Homer Simpson on the Tracy Ullman show, as opposed to like the second season uh, uh, on the series, like it's the same actor doing the same character. But he didn't find the voice, and it didn't sound quite right on the Tracy Ullman show. Castellaneta. Ah, yeah, Castanella. I don't know names. Castaner. Or, or literature. Castanets. I think it's Castanets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Craig and I. Or, uh, or Star Trek. No, you're and perfect. If- <laughs> you're, these are all just gifts to me because you know how I like to disagree with you on the airwaves. And yeah. I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that the very final shot, we see them uh, finally encountering the starship victory, and it is a weird-ass looking ship. I don't know if y'all noted. It looks like they took two <laughs> yeah. ships uh, that were identical, flipped one upside down, and glued them yeah. on top of each other. I would be so disappointed if I was assigned to that ship. That janky-ass ship. Awesome. So let's uh, let's talk final thoughts on this. This episode is uh, well sort of thought of throughout canon um, in terms of folks who who have reviewed the series uh, in the years since. Um, it has been uh, up there in the top ten for a lot of um, publications that have talked about or who who have rated Star Trek: The Next Generation. Where does this episode fall for y'all, Greg? Talk to me about this episode. I, I I have almost zero complaints about this episode. We have a few quibbles here online, some of the performance moments, but overall, it's a really strongly written episode. It's well shot. The performances are feel strong, and it's about something that we're still struggling with now. Uh, it's a very human story. 
Um, and I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna give it ten out of ten victory uh, lines that were broken when the ship fell down. It was, it's great. It's a fantastic <laughs> episode. It's probably one of the best wow. masterpieces of of uh, of Star Trek so far. Fantastic. I love it, Jimmy. Uh, I love it too. Uh, I'll give it eight steampunk levers. Um, just can't go with ten, even though I don't disagree with Greg at all. It's uh, whatever quibbles I have, or it doesn't matter. It didn't impact my enjoyment of the show. It's super sci-fi uh, uh, um, tropes and and storyline and uh, it, everything. It, every plot they gave us was exciting it was cool that there was very few of the regular cast uh we really focused on Jordy data and pulaski with us a you know little cameo by picard uh and it set up a really great character that you know in four years we get to meet again uh and a very fun episode there too so it's it's a great one and if you're new to star trek you you want to know where to start if you don't want to go through everything start here because it's really good episode would you move it up to a 10 out of 10 if you realize that there's no wesley crusher in this episode <laughs> you bastard <laughs> maybe a nine <laughs> eric well i got i yeah i'm gonna give it 10 out of 10 uh ozark shakespearean actors um, <laughs> um but there's a, only one of them but no, I, I'm just I'm always thrilled to see to see someone like that uh, coming from somewhere relatively close to where I came from, uh, and I agree with Greg. I agree with Jimmy, and I bet I agree with you, Kate, which I'll find out soon. This is one of my absolute favorite episodes. Um, when we were talking about it coming up next, we all just kind of went ah. So uh, that's very <laughs> exciting. I had the ball. I thought I would rewatching it, and uh, I'm glad to be here talking about it. What did you think, Kate? I'm giving it nine and a half crumpets. Uh, I want to give it, uh, I want to, I want to leave myself that extra half a point. Cause I know uh, some of my favorite episodes are still yet to come. Not that they can't all be tens, uh, but um, I don't know. I'm an East German judge. Uh, so I'm going to under, under <laughs> no, I'm, just I'm going to steroids? some kind of <laughs> acrobatics when it's time for Tin Man. Cause it, it's got to be higher, but I'll, I'll figure it out. I've got time. Uh, but uh, I think it's 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 Brent Spiner at his finest. I mean, he's just so wonderfully good in this episode um, and in so many different ways uh, because he he goes back and forth between the character that uh, and of course, it's the character that Data would play. Right. It's just it's 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 on so many different levels that he's operating. Uh, he's playing, you know, six dimensional chess. Uh, in this episode the whole time uh, and it's just really lovely and uh, I agree with you it, it gives us a great chance to get to know Pulaski a little bit better um, and gets us to know Jordy a little better because I feel like season one didn't give us quite enough Jordy uh, love as we should have um, and so yeah all in all it's just a it's just a solid fucking episode and I love it and uh, I love all of you true story true and i'm excited story. for our next episode which is the outrageous okona uh, which kate by the way has a interesting little tidbit about six dimensional chess that i'm excited ah! to share next That's a lot episode. of dimensions yes uh well then uh join us for multiple dimensions and find out how many of them your pants are wet in a lot of wet oh, pants in that episode i think lots of wet pants we'll see you next time
Don't you hate pants? <laughs> <laughs> that was Dan Castanets. It was. <laughs> Danny. Sounded like Harry Shearer to me. <laughs> Thanks for joining our Cultural Bridge Officers for this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing the mission with another episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. We want to hear from our listeners. If you've got questions or observations, hailing frequencies are open. You can email letsreengage at gmail.com or if you're more social media minded, follow Reengage on Instagram and Twitter at reengagetng to get updates on episode drops and all kinds of fun. Eric Grattan email is the best way to ask him a question. Follow Kate Yeager at Yeagerlicious on Twitter and Instagram. Jimmy G is Jimmy at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Greg Tito is Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Reengage is edited and mixed by Krista Curry, Christopher from Glee on Twitter, and Krista.curry on Instagram. Logo artwork by MojoJojo97 on Twitter, or you can find her at Mojo97.com. And our theme music is by the incomparable Ryan Marth. Thanks for listening. Stand by for Riker's Beard to Reengage.